theology. Replacement theology in general is the Christian assumption that the gospel has replaced the law, that the church has replaced Israel, that grace has replaced works as a means for salvation, that the Spirit has replaced the Torah, that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant, and that the New Testament has replaced the Old Testament, and that faith has replaced obedience. Now, in many kinds of contexts, whether they mean to or not, Christian teachings seem to indicate that. And many of these ideas, it's easy to find biblical texts that appear to confirm this. But upon closer look, that is incorrect. The Disciple Center is going to be reading two books, as I mentioned earlier in the service. And in some ways, they both attempt to correct this false understanding by explaining the biblical perspective on the gospel and the centrality of Israel. Today I want to look at this latter issue, the centrality of Israel, and I want to do it with a text that comes from the readings for this week, particularly Acts chapter 10. Uh, There's a small section that is in the readings, but I'm going to look at both chapter 10 uh, of Acts and chapter 11. I'm not going to do a lot of comment. I'm going to limit my comments, let the story tell itself. But I think it's important that we... uh, see that. It would be very easy, very easy, for someone with no background to read the text that we read earlier at Epiphany and hear about John the Baptist and think he was one of us. Bruce is a Baptist. You guys are a Baptist. This is a Baptist church. John was a Baptist. But the Bible doesn't mean Baptist in that sense, in any sense of the word, because what we call being Baptist didn't exist at that time. John was a guy who immersed people. We could have called him John the Immerser, or as my friend Dr. John Fisher says, John the Dipper. John the Big Dipper, right? Uh, Because he put people in water. Now, actually, John didn't put people in water. In Jewish baptism... You don't put someone down like we do in Christian baptism. You baptize yourself. You drop down into the water and step up yourself. And the person is a witness to you doing it. Uh, And so John probably didn't hold people underwater. He just, they came down and immersed themselves in front of him. And he acknowledged that they had done so appropriately in that context. So uh, it's really easy to take the Bible in English particularly portions of the Bible in English, which is the way we get it. We tend not to read through entire books. And then as a result of that, begin to put our own definitions and understandings of terms in there. And that's really how replacement theology happened. I don't believe that anybody sat down and said, I'm going to get rid of Judaism. I'm going to get rid of the Jewish centrality of the Bible uh, and make it about Gentiles and about this Jesus who... Uh, will just pretend he wasn't a Jew. I don't think they did that. Now, there were some people who were seriously anti-Semitic. But I think in most cases, we all live in an egocentric context. We tend to see the world from our perspective. Uh, If you watch a news station, you will see a, a, a lot of times you'll see a map behind. And that map is done in the way that you and I all see it. The United States on the left, Europe in the middle, and the Far East. And it just works perfect for us. 
But if you go to Hawaii or you go to Japan and you see the world maps, you don't see them that way. Japan is in the center. And we're over here on the right and Europe is on the left. Which is correct. It's a perspective. The perspective of the Bible makes Jerusalem center of everything that's going on. And it makes Israel the heart of the activity of God, both in producing the Messiah and in the Messiah's work. And the New Testament says that over and over and over again. In some sense, the Old Testament and the Newer Testament, the Older Testament, Newer Testament, the whole Bible is written by Jews for Jews. And very little of it is written directly to us. But we are included in that. And a lot of people think our inclusion is at Pentecost. But that is not true. Our inclusion begins to take place in chapter 10 and 11 of uh, the book of Acts. So I'd like you to turn there with me. And we're going to look at that. I'm going to point some things out as we go along. But for the most part, I'm going to read it. First, in, for the sake of time, we had a long liturgy today, and a great amount of testimonies, which I love. Never bothered by that. I love a congregation that's interactive in that kind of sense. So, I'd much rather edit some sermon and keep the congregational context going. So, The scripture says, there was a man named Cornelius uh, at Caesarea. A centurion of what is called the Italian cohort. King James says an Italian band. When I first read that, I thought they had a rock band. You know, how you bring your own ideas into that thing. When I was a kid, I, you know, I was into rock and roll, so maybe this Italian guy was, right? He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. So he and his house all were God-fearers, what, the, what uh, Jews called God-fearers. Uh, And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So here's a man who is Italian in Rome. He is a military guy. You would think he'd be way into the Greco-Roman mythologies and and the emperor worship. But he was a God-fearer. By that it meant he feared the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believed in the God of Israel As the true God. And because of that. He would do good things. Give alms. He would give to the needs of the Jewish people. Because God had said. Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. So he understands. This centrality of Jewishness. Or Israel in that context. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision. Ninth hour of the day, does that trigger something to you? There are prayer times in Judaism. And at this time, there were three major prayer times. One was the morning prayer uh, at the third hour. Uh, Then there was the sixth hour prayer at noon. And the Ninth hour prayer at three in the afternoon. 
The third hour prayer was when they did the morning sacrifice. And Solomon had said, when people pray, and even Gentiles pray, uh, uh, hear, Lord, in heaven, when they pray towards this place, here in heaven. And at the noonday prayer, you remember Daniel in the diaspora would pray three times a day. And those he took the morning prayer, the evening prayer, and put one in the middle. So those were standard prayer times. What is he doing? This Gentile is adapting his life to the Jewish liturgy because it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, and it is in the context of the Holy Land. So, it says in the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision of an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. So, boy, we just read about Zacharias inside the temple, remember? And the angel shows up. Well, here's an Italian. And an angel shows up, right? And fixing his gaze on him and being alarmed, I dare say, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Whoa. His prayers and his giving to Israel has ascended as a memorial as an Ebenezer, as an altar, as a statement to God. Not just his prayers. And he said, Now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying at the tanner's house, named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants... Uh, and a devout soldier, and those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained to them what had happened, he sent them to Joppa. Now, Joppa is just below Tel Aviv. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been to a little place, and they tell you this is Simon's house. Who knows, right? Uh, uh, but they'll sell you stuff there, right? Uh, I shopped today where Jesus walked, right? That's, that's what Israel is like sometimes. So uh, we have him doing that. So, now I want you to look at verse 9. Now, notice that God doesn't say to the angel, Cornelius, let me tell you the gospel. Let me tell you the good news. Because after all, it's to the Gentiles anyway. He could have easily bypassed the apostles. He could have easily bypassed Israel. could have easily bypassed that. But that's not God's intent. He says, go to Joppa and get this guy named Peter. Here's where he'll be. So now we find Peter. Verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way, approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Sixth hour. What is that? Noon. Peter's going to stand up on the roof. The roof is the patio. Okay. And he's going to pray at noon towards the temple. Because he's Jewish. He's following the Jewish liturgy, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes up to do that, and what happens is, he becomes hungry. And he desired to eat, he must have told them. And while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. Now, I don't think, oh, I'm starving, and now it's, this is not a, a food deprivation trance. It's just that he's in prayer, It's a time of prayer, and often God 
interacts with people when they're praying. That ought to give you some encouragement to pray. Okay? And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. So there's this sheet thing coming down, the four corners, and there's stuff in it. Okay? Um, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Okay? So what you have is there's no cows, there's no sheep, there's no lambs, there's no bullocks, there's no turtle doves. What there is is shellfish, Crawling things, maybe a pig or two, drop down, and a voice says, Peter, kill these and eat. You're hungry. So what does Peter say? By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Well, I thought Jesus said everything was clean. No, he didn't. That's a mistranslation. Only Bible that gets it right is the King James. Doesn't say, thus he cleansed all food. You can't make the Greek say that, no matter what you do to the Greek. But virtually every translation says that. That's called replacement theology, folks. So a voice comes again and says, What God has cleansed, do not consider unholy. Now this thing happens three times. Peter's confused. He's greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision he had seen might mean. And while that happens, Cornelius's guys show up, having asked directions to Simon's house. And they come to the gate, or the entrance of the house. Calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, three men are looking for you. So God says, basically, directly to Peter, there's some people looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Now, had God not told Peter this, he would not have gone with them. We read earlier that the Samaritan woman was shocked that Jesus would talk to her, because Jews believed that the purpose of their commandments was to make them holy unto God and separate from the people. And they meant geographically. Just, you just don't eat with people. Okay? They eat unclean food, we eat clean food, so you don't associate with them. So, Peter's now told to go with these guys. So, he says, uh, uh, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? Verse 21. Verse 22, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. I dare say he was giving alms to them. He was known by the Jews in his community because he did good for them. Uh, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So Peter invites them in and gives them lodging. Now the next day, he got up and went with them, and some brethren also from Joppa accompanied them. That's some Jewish guys, right? And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. 
probably anyone who was a God-fearer in his community, he was bringing them in. And they met him, and he fell at his feet and worshipped him. Woo! Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I'm also a man. Uh, Be careful of anyone who is in ministry who lets you... uh, uh, ooze at their presence. Okay? All through the scriptures, whenever the apostles were treated as more than they were, they stopped it immediately. They didn't buy that advertising. Too many pastors do and get caught up in the pride of Satan and that's their downfall. So, As he talked with them, he entered and found all these people assembled. Now look at verse 28. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or clean. He gets the idea of the vision. The vision is not about food. He's not saying, now you can eat all this non-kosher stuff. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't call what I cleanse unclean. And he's talking about people. So this is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius then tells him the story of what the Lord had done. And so he wants to do it. So now we get the passage that's in our weekly reading. Without this background, it's very easy to treat this as if it's just a Gentile thing. So opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him, fears who? What God? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, right? Not just any God. It's not to whom it may concern up there, okay? We have a lot of people who are monotheistic and then they create God in their own image. There's a God who's revealed himself. He's the God of Abraham. That God. If you can't say the God of Abraham is my God, you have a false God. Even if you're a monotheist. Okay? The word which he sent to to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And you yourselves know... uh, the things that took place in Judea starting from Galilee after the baptism of John was proclaimed. That baptism of John was a revival among the Jewish people that God was about to bring the kingdom forward and the messianic age. And John, they were flocking to John and the leaders weren't too happy about it and that's why John gave them fits and said, show me some real repentance here. You know Jesus of Nazareth How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things. We did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him on the third day and granted that he become visible. As a resurrected person. Not to all the people, but to witnesses 
who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We, we saw this. This is our own testimony. And he ordered us to preach it to the people and to solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And of him all the prophets bear witness. And through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is a Jewish message. But Peter is saying it goes beyond us. Goes beyond us. Now while Peter was still speaking these words. The Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And the circumcised, that is the Jewish believers, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Now, why would these guys get this? They were at Pentecost. Pentecost wasn't a bunch of Gentiles becoming the church. It was Jews becoming the church. And they spoke in the tongues that they had, of their diaspora the psalms of God, the praises of God. And now they see these Gentiles doing the same thing. Well, it must be the same spirit. The spirit that was in us, that's in us, is now in them. That's amazing. So, Peter says, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just like we. Anybody object? There were no objection. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he stayed with them a few days. Okay, I guess some Gentiles are getting in too. Alright, okay. Not all of them are unclean. There are some who fear God. I guess it works there. They, they can get the message too. That's fine. It's not going to be fine because... Paul's got to come back and face the board. You know? I mean, Peter. Now, when the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Have you ever had anybody take issue with you? It's not fun. You know, they confront you. They said, you went, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now, Paul's, Paul's going to address this with Peter. But, Pete, you know, Peter's going, okay, okay. Peter said, uh, let me explain. I was in the city of Joppa praying. I was in a trance. I saw a vision. It fell down. There was all these unclean animals. I heard, kill Peter and eat, and I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't eat anything unclean. A voice from heaven said, what God has cleansed, you are not to consider unholy. Three times that happened. And then these guys showed up, and then I was talking to them, and the Spirit told me to go with them. And so when I was speaking to them and tell them about Jesus, what happened to us at Pentecost happened to them. And I remembered the word of the Lord how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift that he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus, who am I that I could stand in God's way? And they said, 
Great. Now, what would you think would happen? You would think, if you're, if you're thinking as an evangelical, okay, now the gates are open. Wherever you go, make sure you include the God-fearers and the Gentiles in that message. That is not what they did. The disciples did not interpret the Great Commission as go to all the nations and make disciples. They interpreted it as go among the nations in the diaspora and tell the Jews to become disciples. That's how they interpreted it. God meant it beyond that. He didn't mean to replace. He meant to expand. So, we get to chapter 11. and uh, Now, uh, where, where we are. So, he tells the story. And we pick it up at verse uh, 19. So then there were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. You remember the story of Stephen. He preaches to the Jewish officials. He says, I see Jesus. At the right hand of God, they kill him. Uh, So there's a persecution on Jewish believers in Jesus in the Jerusalem, Judea area. Jesus said, when they persecute you, get out of town. So they left. So they made their way to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and to Antioch. Antioch's in the north. Speaking the word to no one except Jews only. You see that? They go into the Gentile areas. And who do they tell the word of God to? Their fellow Jews. They're not, they're not talking to the Gentiles. Yeah, there's some Gentiles among us, but there's always been some Gentiles among us. But this message is to the Jew. The gospel is to the Jew. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now all of a sudden we've got this large group of Gentiles who are turning to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Okay, go check this out. A bunch of Gentiles. We got this little group that Peter had. Now we got a bunch of them. We better check this out. Barnabas, you're on your way. Okay. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he saw that it was authentic and genuine. He rejoined, uh, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all Uh, with resolute heart, to remain true to the Lord. Now, how would they remain true to the Lord? They would hang out with the Jewish believers who believe in Jesus, and they would interact with them, and they would worship the God of Israel, uh, probably praying at at the appropriate times and all that stuff, right? Um, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So what does Barnabas do? Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Because Barnabas is the one that God said, uh, there's a, I have a man I want you to you know, go get him. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is our beginning. Our beginning is with Israel. Not as Israel. We don't become Jews. 
we don't become Israel, but we come alongside Israel, and that's what Christians in the Bible, Baptist in the Bible was John the Dipper, Christian in the Bible is a Gentile who comes to a knowledge of the Messiah and joins himself to the God of Israel and the Israel of God. And that's who we are. And it's important that we keep that in mind because replacement theology will cause us to boast against the natural branches. Now, I want to have you look at one more verse. And for I know for a lot of you this is, you know, we've heard this, we've heard this, we've got it down. But this is going to become more and more difficult as the days go forward. Because as anti-Semitism increases, any connection between Christians and Jews is going to be seen as problematic. So I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. This will be my last passage. Paul will now take this gospel to the Gentiles and he will do it by saying the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Also. It's not to the Greek and maybe the Jews can have it too. It's to the Jews and also the Greeks. And it's to the Jews first. But he knows something that we need to understand it in this context. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Remember that his calling, God said, he's going he's to proclaim my name among the Gentiles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Okay? How he got considered the first pope, I don't get. Okay? Uh, Peter's primary focus was to Jews, though he included Samaritans and and uh, Gentiles. But Paul's primary ministry, even though he first goes to the Jews, is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, he means us Gentiles, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. That's in chapter 2. You can read that later. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He's doing mystery again. In which other generations was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Okay, Paul, what the heck is this? Mystery. You keep talking about the mystery. What is the mystery? Here it is. To be specific. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Very interesting term. Fellow. We use the word fellow when somebody is giving a connection to an institution. Doctors can become fellows of a medical community. It means that they are considered part of it, but they don't replace it. We are fellow heirs. We are fellow citizens. We are fellow partakers. It doesn't mean we push them out. It means we come alongside them. 
as Cornelius did. We should acknowledge that the God we worship is the God of Israel. We should bless Israel so that they see that the Spirit that has given them their scriptures has drawn us to those scriptures alongside of them. Fellowship with Israel is not replacement of Israel. It's inclusion with Israel. And that has to be done as the Bible speaks, not in word alone, but in word and deed. And for us to begin to move in that direction more fully, I think we have to get our focus back on that notion. And therefore, we will be reading that opening the rabbinic doors to the gospel by Thomas Tribalhorn, and that will help you see the Jewish context. And then we will read Israel Matters by Jacob Fronzak, which will help us to see the centrality of Israel, not just in bringing Jesus. It's, we, the replacement has this idea, Israel was important because they produced the Messiah, and then God's done with them. That's not true. He's still primarily functioning with Israel. I'm not talking about the nation. I'm talking about the people. And he's ultimately going to bring together what's going on. So he has put Israel in the diaspora. He has brought the gospel to them and to us. And as we come to the gospel, we should, in some sense, be God-fearers like Cornelius in making it clear that we are following the God of Israel and that we bless Israel and do good towards Israel. Which was what Paul said. You Gentiles have received what was rightfully theirs. So you owe them to treat them well and to help them in their concerns and in their needs. And that's part of this process. So I expect to address themes found in both of these books. And I will also address questions and thoughts that you have as a result of reading the books. Now, I don't know if you know the history, but I want to say one thing and then I'm going to stop. Christianity Today and a number of other publications are beginning to write more and more about the movement away from support of Israel. The problem that we have is there is Israel the people there's Israel, the nation. There's the promises of the nation of Israel. And so when we use these terms, we have to be really careful. Because what is happening is, there are people who think that whatever happens over in Israel, it's got to be supported because they're God's people. Okay? Israel's not always obedient to God. So be careful of that. On the other hand, there are people that just don't like Jews and Israel and they will use anything to go after it. And we cannot be partakers with them. We have to be a calm, clear, and solid voice that says to them, we are for you as you walk with the Lord. When you don't walk with the Lord, in the same way that we will rebuke each other, we may rebuke you. But we will not abandon each other and we will not abandon the hope of Israel because the hope of Israel is also our hope as well, the kingdom that will come. It's going to get dicey. And we're in an election year. And you know I'm not political because I don't care about that stuff. But boy, is it going to happen. And we're going to get drawn into stuff. So I'm going to try during this year 
uh, as the news is going crazy and people are going crazy and the traffic's going crazy, to try to bring some clarity, at least for our purposes, in this context. And uh, hopefully that will help. So don't hesitate to bring up questions in that context. In the meantime, let's pray.